If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. You did not want to be convicted of treason in medieval England. The penalty was likely to be a particularly brutal, humiliating and very public demise. That was because, as you're about to hear from Dr Amanda Vitti, Treason was seen as breaking the social bond between men that underpinned the way that upper echelons operated. And the matter of treason became particularly heated in the troubled times of the later 14th and early 15th centuries. Putting the questions to Dr McFitty was our content director, David Musgrove. So, uh, today I am joined by Dr Amanda McVitty, who is lecturer in history at Massey University in New Zealand. Uh, so that means for the purpose of this interview, I'm up at an unseemly hour in the morning and Amanda is working late for us. So if anyone spots a, an early morning mania in me in a relaxed evening ambience from Amanda, that's what's going on. Her new book, Treason and Masculinity in Medieval England, is published by Boydell and Brewer. So that is the topic that we're discussing today, treason and masculinity. Um, Amanda, first question, are you able to define what treason was in the Middle Ages and who defined it? So one of the fascinating and quite challenging things about studying treason in the medieval period is there was no single agreed meaning So treason wasn't a matter of black and white legal definition. It existed on this continuum of shades of grey. And in medieval England, we're dealing with a society that's uh, quite strongly shaped by the cultural forces of chivalry and ideals of knighthood, but also one that's more broadly based on social bonds uh, and personal and family loyalties. So from the king downwards, you in this hierarchical political structure, medieval government functioned through ties of patronage, uh, service, lordship, and affinity between men. So in this uh, political and social context, we get long-standing customary ideas of treason as a betrayal of knightly honour and of personal loyalties between men, rubbing up against and sometimes also conflicting with more formal legal definitions. And complicating things further is that treason was often manipulated for political ends with accusations of treason being used by powerful men to get rid of their political enemies and this this discourse of the, the wicked advisor that is very comes up again and again in uh, the history of this period. So at its most basic, treason included what seem fairly obvious crimes, like trying to kill the king, fomenting rebellion, or waging war against the king in his own realm. But it also extended to more nebulous offences, like publicly questioning the king's legitimacy, 
seeking to disinherit him or his heirs or trying to deprive him of his subjects' love. Now, having said all that, the first statutory definition of treason in English law came in 1352's Great Statute of Treasons. And this included clauses that define treason as trying to kill the king, the queen, or the king's eldest son, but also of having sexual intercourse with the king's wife, his eldest unmarried daughter, or the wife of his eldest son. So these uh, offences that were seen as tainting uh, the royal bloodline and you know, interfering with that process of dynastic succession and political legitimacy. Uh, so here we see treason imagine, being imagined as a very intimate crime focused on the person of the king and on his immediate family as an, uh, an extension essentially of his royal body. But the statute then goes on to more public types of treason, such as attacking the chancellor or other senior government officials while they were about the king's business, or forging the king's seal. And in the period I focus on, the, that legal scope gets steadily expanded, and we also see uh, start to see the idea of treason as acts against the people and nation of England or against the public good of the realm. And beyond these legal definitions, and sometimes in conflict with them, are also cultural ideas of treason as a betrayal of manly honour and of bonds of loyalty that are seen as natural, so these natural ties that help, you know, designed by God to help human society function. And these bonds are often secured by sworn oaths. So, for example, men were called traitors because they'd shown cowardice in battle or because they had betrayed their lord by committing adultery with his wife. And this, these were common themes in chivalric literature, such as you know, the, the stories of King Arthur. But these kinds of accusations also surfaced in real life. That's a very full uh, full answer to my to my, my my brief question to start with. So that's so that sort of uh, helps to define the problem. So you talked there about the, this great statue of treasons in uh, in thirteen fifty two. So in the in the middle of the fourteenth century, um, and that's in the in the reign of Edward the third. Um, and then your period of study is kind of a, a bit later than that. Generally, you're looking more at uh, sort of the later fourteenth, early fifteenth century. Um, You've you've defined treason there quite uh, quite extensively. Um, when when did people first start talking about it though? Because you know treason obviously happened before that period. Um, what, do we when when are the first sort of references to treason as, as a as a concept? I think actually the idea of treason goes well back into the earlier medieval period. Um, and certainly, we even see ideas of it in class, you know, in classical antiqu antiquity, and indeed some of these uh, treason laws that you see on the continent in the medieval period derive from that classical Roman law. So, I think that notion, that more fundamental notion of of trust and betrayal, is is probably quite fundamental to political society, um, but. You know, the later medieval period, we do certainly get uh, much more concerned with trying to nail down uh, legal definitions of it that operate um, 
alongside these other broader kind of cultural concepts of treason. Mm. I got it. I got it. I see. So, so it's the it's the legal situation in the 14th century that uh, that's that's perhaps um, uh, making it more more pertinent. So, so um, your period, the, the, let's say the 1380s through to the 1420s, um, is that a time when treason and treachery is particularly coming to the fore as a, as a concept, or is it that people are trying to legally clarify it? Well, a lot of it is that treason really becomes an issue, and this is still even the case today, where we see discourses of treason around you know, Brexit and the Trump presidency and so on. But it comes to the fore in times of political and constitutional crisis, really, where there's a lot of uncertainty and conflict about where political power lies, uh, the extent of that power, um, the nature of legitimate uh, government, um, and who should actually, who can legitimately wield um, the coercive power of the the state or of sovereign authority and whichever form it takes and how that power can be wielded. So the period I looked at, the sort of 1380s through to the 1420s, is a period where you do get an awful lot of uh, this political uncertainty and conflict going on, partly because, you know, initially we have a royal minority with Richard II coming to the throne when he's just 10 years old and you know, he, there's these other powerful men behind the scenes and there's a bit of jockeying for power and so on. And Richard's reign overall is pretty uh, unsettled, uh, you know, has, has these periods of great sort of uncertainty, uh, conflicts where conflicts over treason come to the fore because there are these factional kind of contests about who can be close to the king and therefore who can kind of wield power in the in the realm. But then Richard is deposed finally in 1399. He proves to be such a bad king that they decide to get rid of him. Um, and his throne is usurped by his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes King Henry IV. And as soon as you have that complete rupture in the normal line of succession, um, you get these questions about first of all how that that process can actually be managed how they can they can separate Richard from his crown uh, which has been you know theoretically uh, delegated to him by God himself uh, but then a lot of questions about Henry's legitimacy and particularly when Henry's own reign starts to not uh, perhaps live up to people's expectations and you know taxes are heavy and, and the wars aren't going well and so on. Uh, so that really carries on th- through the reign of Henry the fourth and then the, into the reign of his son where these questions of is he actually the true king, the legitimate king, or is there a more legitimate heir to the throne continue to keep surfacing um, periodically? And then I think you have this wider context to consider over the 14th century and into the 15th century of the Hundred Years' War with France. So this period of periodic uh, conflict, um, campaigns in France, but also, you know, raids by the French on the English coastline and so on. Um, Conflict among the king's advisors and the 
uh, sort of senior nobles about the strategy for pursuing that war and whether or not they should be making peace or being more aggressive and so on. And outside that, you get a number of rebellions in this period, including the Great Revolt in 1381, um, and a major Welsh rebellion, who, which is led by Owain Glyndwr in the early 1400s, and that drags on for a number of years. And this sort of where you have the situation where you're quite often in conflict, you know, you're conducting military campaigns, that gets very expensive. So you also get these periodic financial crises too. And so all of those factors combined create this atmosphere of sort of increased conflict and the potential for accusations of, of treason to erupt as part of that, um, that political conflict. Okay, so let's let's dive into uh, into this period in a in a bit more depth. So, uh, as you said, you've got Richard II, who's who's from thirteen seventy seven to thirteen ninety nine. Then you've got Henry the Fourth uh, from then until uh, fourteen thirteen, and then uh, Henry the Fifth after that. Um, and uh, when you read your book, um, which is a really good read uh, and uh, very insightful for this topic, um, it's kind of it feels like it's a it's a roller coaster of accusations and counter accusations of treason between various factions and people, and there's lots and lots of stuff going on. Um, so we're not going to be able to, to to cover it all. But could you give us a very quick rough summation of who is accused of treason uh, and when during this period, so we get a, a good sense of what's going on. So treason really um, arises in three broad contexts. The first are cases involving members of this political elite um, who were or were perceived to be too close to the king. And these are these, these accusations of context of, of treason that erupt uh, in the context of, of factional politics, uh, for want of a better term, as you get one group of men sort of trying to... Uh, shift other groups that they see either as overt political enemies or as having monopolised the king's uh, favour and therefore the patronage that then brings wealth and status and power and so on. So one really good example of this is the Merciless Parliament of 1388, uh, very well named, in which basically a group of nobles who had been somewhat frozen out of Richard's inner circle and from some of those uh, privileges of power and of being close to the king uh, launched these accusations of treason against a group of men that were termed in various very stereotypical terms as the king's wicked advisors. So they were seen as men who would basically weaseled themselves into the king's inner circle. And because Richard was then at that time was, he wasn't that young, but he was represented in the treason accusations as being very young and vulnerable and open to manipulation by these men around him. So that uh, there was basically a purge and a number of these men were uh these trials were staged in Parliament and, you know, people, quite a number of people were executed uh, during the Parliament itself. And then we get another, a kind of a response to that in 1397 with the Revenge Parliament when Richard is, you know, ruling in his full, you know, the full um, 
his full manhood as an adult king and he basically goes through the process of charging the nobles that had purged his own household and purged his intimates from around him in 1388. So they are in turn charged and convicted of treason. So uh, the men uh, men convicted included Richard, Earl of Arundel, who was uh, drawn through London and beheaded, and Richard's own uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, uh, who had actually been already imprisoned in Calais, and he was murdered there, probably on Richard's orders, uh, smothered to death by a feather bed. And then in 1399, with Richard's deposition and the accession of Henry IV, the tables get turned again as as Henry then stages these very public trials of um, or convictions of uh, Richard's most loyal supporters. Although on that occasion, Henry, in the interests of bringing peace to the kingdom and reunifying the political community didn't actually have any of them executed then, but a number of them went on to uh, attempt a rising against Henry with the intention of restoring Richard to the throne. And during the course of that rising, they were basically killed by uh, mobs. So they were accused of treason by these mobs of people in the in, in the various towns where they had fled to and uh, killed before they could be brought back before the king to be formally um, convicted and executed. So then you also get the second kind of context that where these uh, outbreaks of treason happen is when you get formally lo- lo- formerly loyal noblemen and knights who, for various reasons, come to oppose the king and sometimes to mount rebellions against him. And we see quite a bit of this in the first decade of Lancastrian rule. So we get supporters like the powerful Percy's of Northumberland who originally uh, backed Henry when he invaded England with his... With his uh, military forces and eventually deposed Richard. But then they they later turned against him. Some historians say this was for personal gain, others because they they held sincere political principles. So the Percys were themselves circulating a manifesto in which they said that Henry had actually murdered Richard and broken an oath not to seize the throne. And so that by rising against him, they were defending the public good of the realm. And Henry V actually also faced some similar kind of uh, treason from people who had been noblemen who had been relatively close to him. And the, the third context in which we see treason arising in this period, which is uh at the, the other end of the social scale, really, so from these noble plots and factions and counterfactions and so on, we get cases that uh, primarily arise from a new or an increased focus on political dissent under the new Lancastrian regime. And this is where we see a focus much more on the prosecution of treasonous speech. 
So people saying things like, you know, spreading public rumours that Richard was going to return and reclaim his throne because Henry was not the legitimate king. And these kinds of cases involve very ordinary people, so, you know, servants and artisans and so on. In one case, a man who's described simply as a vagrant who's been wandering from town to town uh, allegedly spreading the story that, you know, Henry was not the legitimate king at all and Richard was going to, rot, you know, come back with an army any day and reclaim his throne and so all his loyal followers should, should be ready to, to rise up and support him. So, you know, some of these cases really, really started simply with talk being overheard in taverns or the circulation of rumours, and in other cases with the circulation of written handbills and petitions. And sometimes those petitions actually get sent to foreign courts as well, asking for people like, uh, you know, the, the King of France to intervene um, on behalf of Richard II and help him reclaim his throne. Uh, and so these cases too, a number of them, have a more direct connection to the context of this ongoing war with France and also the rebellion in Wales. So in one case, an, a man, an accused man was charged for allegedly boasting that, you know, he was about to go off to France to join up with the French Dauphin and fight against the English. And in another case, a man was charged with treason because he was overheard saying that he was going to join the rebels in Wales, um, partly because the pay was supposedly so much better. So, and then from 1406, uh, we also see royal authorities starting to make a more direct causal connection between religious dissent and uh, political dissent so that treason and heresy become quite intertwined in the eyes of the royal justice system. And that really reaches a, a peak in 1414 with a new statute that causally links the Lollard heresy and treason and gives royal authorities a mandate to root out and destroy both religious and political dissenters who are seen as equal threats to the body politic of the realm. Okay, thanks. So that's uh, you, you've done very well there, summarising uh, some of the big events. Just, just for, I'm sure most of our listeners are, are completely clear about this, but you used the word Lancastrian a couple of times there. Um, oh, perhaps you could just, yes. just, just clarify completely. So uh, we've got Richard II. He, he's effectively deposed by by Henry the Fourth, and that's 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 what we're talking about here. So just, just, just clarify that um, completely for us, could you? Okay, so Henry the Fourth was uh, Richard's cousin. So he was the son of uh, John of Gaunt, and he was the hereditary Duke of Lancaster. So hence the fact that they are sometimes talked about as the Lancastrian kings or the Lancastrian bloodline that then comes down through the 15th century period. So it's where the, the royal bloodline sort of takes a bit of, a bit of a dog leg <laughs> away from Richard's direct line and, and jumps to his, to his cousin, Henry and his successors. And this, of course, becomes, you know, involved in this later, the conflict later in the 15th century between the Yorkists and the Lancastrians. 
brilliant. And obviously that's a very complicated business that we're not going to get into in, in this <laughs> okay. conversation. So so look, so what you've defined there is is basically treason becoming quite a broad brush thing that's used for lots of lots of different purposes, which leads me to wonder, did people actually believe the underlying concept of treason in this period? Um, or were they just using it as a legal mechanism to either achieve power, exact revenge, or just get their political aims done? It was just like a legal tool that enabled people to, to, to get stuff done. I really think it operates as both. And it's obviously very difficult, if not impossible, to get into the, the heads of some of these people and determine what they really believed as opposed to what they said they believed in public. But there does seem to be, although treason certainly used as a very useful political weapon, there is certainly this underlying quite deep and I think quite sincere cultural anxiety about who you can trust and uh, the potential for these personal bonds between people to become corrupted. And certainly you see this in fears of uh, these masculine bonds that hold the political community together that are already secured through uh, vows and sworn oaths that you see the idea coming up again and again that men might swear false bonds to each other and form these, these bonds of confederacy and conspiracies against the king. And I, that idea, that cultural fear is quite sincere, uh, despite the fact that on occasion treason is a very uh, convenient political weapon to get rid of your personal enemies um, and your political enemies. So I think um, it operates basically on on both levels, really. We'll come back to the to the masculinity bit in in a, in a second, if we can. But um, I suppose one of the problematic bits with with treason in this period is um, a king is deposed. So that that is essentially an act of treason, I suppose, against Richard II. In Richard II's view, at what point do we get an idea, if at all, of the separation of king versus country, and uh, you being able to commit treason to one or the other or both? Well, it doesn't really fully uh, um, it's not fully defined to that extent in this period, but certainly that idea is coming through. But I think it helps you to get a sense of how medieval people understood the relationship between the king and the realm. And this to some degree ties back into my uh, my centering of gender really, in, in this analysis. So in medieval political thought, the body politic was imagined as a male body with the king as its head and as male subjects as its working limbs. So the whole thing was envisaged as operating as a single organic whole so that the king both embodied and represented the realm or, um, you know, to some degree, thinking about the concept of the nation emerging here as well. So an individual king had a natural mortal body that would eventually age and die, but kingship was an immortal, as, as an immortal body would continue. So the trauma of Richard's deposition had shown the difficulties that of separating a living king from the body politic of the crown 
And as a usurper, Henry IV had to prove his right to hold sovereign power, prove his legitimacy, legitimacy by convincingly joining his own mortal body to this enduring body politic. And one way he did do this was by using of um, charges of treason to construct attacks on himself or defiance of his rule as an attack on the nation of England. And this starts to come out in charges that traitors were uh, planning to destroy the language and laws of England. So these these ideas that really symbolise an emerging sense of of nationhood as having uh, shared laws and a shared language. Um, But that strategy could really cut both ways. So in a number of cases I examined, um, accused traitors defended themselves by saying they were being loyal to the crown uh, or to the nation precisely because they were resisting Henry, who they were saying was an illegitimate usurper. So this idea of the of the king and the nation as entities that were uh, entwined but not completely coterminous uh, was was definitely emerging over the course of the later medieval period. Uh, but it isn't really until later that we see what we could talk about as a as a complete abstraction of the nation state in the way that we think of it today that's completely separate from the body of the king it's uh, it's quite a trick that henry has to pull off isn't it to to explain his just less uh, legitimize his rule and uh, and simultaneously um explain that uh, richard ii wasn't uh, wasn't any good now now you've talked about um uh gender here a little bit and it's very interesting i think reading your book to try and uh, get to grips with this so um Let's let's try and answer this. So treason and, and masculinity are, are kind of linked um, very closely in, in your assessment of what's going on here. Uh, and you talked about oath breaking and the importance of trust, and that goes back, you know, m- many centuries, doesn't it? I think of the of the uh, of the bio tapestry and oaths being made by uh, by Harold to William and things like that, and then being broken and perjury and, and lots of things fall out of that. So. Um, so what's just just talk us through this a bit more. How important is this uh, is this male bond friendship business um, in the concept of treason? Well, I think it goes beyond uh, friendship, really. It's the fact that this we're talking about a personal monarchy where government really relies on these voluntary associations between men to function. So there's no, you know, there's no fully professionalized civil service or bureaucracy or anything that we have in, in a modern polity. So government functions through these personal and political bonds between men. Uh, and what comes tr- through very strongly in the narratives of treason proceedings is this fundamental idea of the traitor as the opposite of the true man. Um, so this is more the cultural context in which treason is becoming is defined that that influences the way treason is defined in law. So this ideal of true manhood seems to have been a fairly universal ideal in medieval England, and that it it applied to men at all levels of society, not just to that sort of elite of the the men close to the king and so on. 
So a true man was loyal and honourable. He upheld justice and he was obedient to right order. And his word was his bond. So these were really essential virtues in in a society in which uh, social, economic and political relationships were still forged primarily through verbal oaths rather than written contracts. So we have written contracts and indentures starting to be used uh, more, but they're still fundamentally backed by a man's uh, sworn oath. So what I really discovered through examining the records for these, uh, for, you know, these, these cases of treason, these the, the actual narratives of prosecution and so on, was that regardless of how treason actually manifested in practice, whether that was staging a re- rebellion or trying to deprive the king of his subjects' love, or in one rather colourful case, plotting to murder the king by smearing a necromancer's poisonous ointment on his saddle, um, every instance re- was really described as beginning with the breaking of these masculine bonds that were seen as natural because they were the bonds by which society was held together and through which uh, it functioned, through, through which politics and government and so on functioned. So this is, comes back to this idea that uh, these personal and familial relationships, some of which were friendships, some of which were much, you know, not necessarily that intimate in terms of friendship and love, but certainly of affinity and patronage and uh, loyalty, that they were quite, they were inherently fragile and open to corruption. So these fears about men forming bonds of, you know, conspiracy and bonds of confederacy and so on. That was a persistent fear throughout the period as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, So it symbolised his undoing as a knight because he had completely lost his knightly honour through his act of treason. And then this process of the hanging and the the drawing and the disemboweling. So each step in this process actually had its own political meaning that would have been understandable to the wider populace. Uh, you mentioned chivalry uh, in, in your first answer when we when we first started talking. Is chivalry a, a sort of a fully formed concept by by this time in the 14th century? And how, how does that play into this uh, into this uh, argument? Well, chivalry is one of those concepts that we often think we know what it means, but when we start to dig into it, we realise it's a, it's a much more slippery concept than, and it and it's much broader and more plastic than we imagine. But certainly, when we look at treason proceedings, these ideals of chivalry do get, especially in the way men uh, try to defend themselves, that the claims to being uh, a true knight and to upholding chivalric virtues of, of honour and uh, loyalty and so on come through quite strongly in the way men try to defend themselves. Uh, at that broader cultural context too, whereby the idea, the way treason is understood in chivalric contexts, 
through not just through the way it's uh, portrayed in sort of chivalric literature like Arthurian romances and so on, but also in the context of uh, the way it's defined through uh, the court of chivalry that is, you know, handles uh, accusations of chivalry that take place in military contexts and that uh, have their origin outside the realm. So, for example, cases where someone is accused of handing over an English fortress to the French in France and so on. So that kind of uh, aspect of, sh- of chivalric culture is also influencing the way treason is understood and defined and expressed in legal contexts. And this all um, helps to understand this concept of the of the wicked advisor, the person who's who's too close to the king, doesn't it? Because when I remember when I was studying medieval history at school, I, I was surprised at that how interested people seemed to be by these favourites and advisors and why. And I, t- I couldn't quite understand why it was such a big deal. But then when you think about it, and and having read your work, it's very obvious that you know that those people uh, are controlling access to power. Um, and that's 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 a key element here. So, so it's all quite Shakespearean in, in a way. Um, so so that's so that's important, right? So this the, the wicked advisor concept is is a big part of this story, yeah. Yes, definitely. Although I think it's important to to distinguish that because this is a personal monarchy, and you know the king rules through this this sort of cascading structure of of personal relationships between men and that is completely normal for him to be surrounded by men he's close to and trusts and uh, that that these men will actually by by having the king's favor will control patronage and the channels of power and so on but the 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 accusations about people being wicked advisors that are often you know incorporated into these treason proceedings particularly those that involve quite high status men who are within the the intimate circles of royal power they often arise they don't come out of a vacuum so often there's other kind of uh more we might call them um, practical tensions going on behind the scenes. So, for example, in the lead-up to the merciless parliament and this this big purge of the, the wicked advisors that goes on then, there is this background where there's a lot of conflict about how the war with France should be managed and what the strategy should be. Um, so that kind of background of... Uh, of military and political tensions that underlie specific military and political and sometimes economic tensions, sort of financial crisis and so on, that underlie these accusations of wicked advisors when they arise. But definitely the sense that uh, access to patronage needs to be managed quite carefully to make sure people aren't being too frozen out and too excluded otherwise, especially with these very powerful men who consider themselves to have the natural right 
to counsel the king and to be part of that inner circle that's deciding matters of policy and military military strategy and so on when they are pushed to the outside by other men, men who are often described as being less worthy and of lower uh, social status, so kind of social climbers in a sense, who've weaseled their way into the king's inner circle and are claiming positions above their natural station, um, that's when these accusations really tend to kick off. So if uh, if treason as a concept is all about uh, men and male bonds, could women be traitors? Well, this is one of the really interesting things I discovered in the course of this research is that there were certainly women involved in these treason proceedings. Um, In a couple of cases, they appear as anonymous women who have been responsible for circulating these rumours and stories about, you know, Henry being illegitimate and basically being channels for this verbal political dissent and unrest but they don't actually get charged with treason themselves. In those kinds of cases, what happens is uh, the man that actually repeats those stories in public is the ones is the one that gets charged with treason and executed, and the the woman basically just disappears from the record. Um, and then in a number of other cases, with more high status women involved in treason plots. So, for example. Uh, Maud de Vere, who was the Countess of Oxford, and also Constance Lady Dispenser, they actually seem to have masterminded treason plots themselves, uh, although there were other men, you know, they had their, their own servants and other men involved and, and sort of pulled into them. But when it comes to the processes of investigation and punishment, they fade into the background. And if they get punished at all, it's with much less severe and more private punishments than their male accomplices. So, for example, in Maud de Vere's case, she simply had her her lands and revenues seized by the king for a few months, but she was never arrested or anything like that. And then she was sort of given everything back again. So there was no long-term consequences for her. Um, Now, this was because in a masculine political culture in which women were basically excluded from government office and other formal channels of power, they were thought to lack political agency by definition and therefore to be incapable of the political crime of treason, although they could be convicted of uh, the crime of petty treason, which was to kill your husband or... uh, Petty treason also covered, uh, say, a servant covering, uh, killing his master and so on. So the inversion of the natural order, basically. But not this this, uh, treason in the political sense in which the sense that other other, uh, men in the treason cases I look at in this book are conceived So while on the one hand, these gendered structures of power denied women the privileges of political subjecthood, on the other hand, their very invisibility in a political sense might, I think, have paradoxically left them freer to operate sort of behind the scenes and under the radar of those royal authorities. 
So it is a very interesting uh, dimension of treason, I think, that this um, that women just don't, certainly not until uh, really into the 16th century, we see women being accused of high treason or of political treason. Now, if, if you did find yourself um, uh, on the wrong end of an accusation of treason in the in the 14th century, you're in a bit of a sticky situation, aren't you? Because chances are um, uh, those in power want to, want to exact some revenge on you. So um, you could use a thing, and uh, correct me if I've misunderstood, you could use a sort of defence of uh, the, the Latin term is diffidatio, which is basically saying that... Uh, uh, you think that the king is is ruling badly and it's your right or indeed your duty to do something about it. Um, or there was also the option of a trial by combat, which you talk about quite a lot in your book. Um, so, uh, so so, just drop us into what, what you could do if you are accused of treason. So diffidatio and trial by combat are both really good examples of how customary and chivalric understandings of treason coexisted with and indeed could sometimes contest more formal legal and statutory definitions. So diffidatio was the formal renunciation of liege homage, that is, when a man formally renounced his sworn oath of fidelity and service to his lord, because that lord was failing to honour his own reciprocal obligations. And this idea of diffidatio extended to uh, a customary belief that as the men chosen by God to help kings enforce royal justice, knights and noblemen had the right, even the duty, to curb a king who was ruling unjustly or who would turn tyrant. So ideally, kings who were going off the rails would be corrected by the wise counsel of these elite men and by removing bad influences from the inner circles of royal power. But if this didn't work, the right to, to diffidatio could in theory take the form of armed resistance. And in practice, this uh, noble right to diffidatio had been all but extinguished uh, during Edward I's time. He cracked down pretty harshly on nobles who did try to exercise it. However, in a number of the cases I looked at, elite men were clearly still drawing on this customary idea of diffidatio to defend themselves from accusations of treason. For example, when in 1397, the Duke of Gloucester was charged with with treason for having been part of the purge of Richard's court in 1388's merciless parliament. He tried to defend himself by saying he'd only done these things to remove bad advisors from, from around the king and to restore good government to the realm. So trial by combat was also an ancient custom, in this case re reaching right back to the early uh, Middle Ages and trial by ordeal. Now by the 14th century, trial by combat was largely seen as a knightly privilege adjudicated by the court of chivalry. It was used in cases where one man accused another of treason, but there was no independent evidence for whether that accusation was true or false. So the idea was that God would reveal which man was telling the truth through his victory in the combat. The loser, if he survived, would then be immediately executed as a proven traitor. 
So in a sense, a trial by combat was men's words made flesh as the truth of what they were saying was tested upon their bodies. And this was quite a ritualized process that started with the uh, traditional throwing of gauntlets. Um, But the centrality of men's words was really symbolized when the accuser's written charges and his opponent's written response to those charges were inserted into their respective gauntlets and the gauntlets were then twisted together as the resort to trial by combat was declared. It's a, it's a pretty risky mm. strategy, though, the trial by combat. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's not very common at all, really. I mean, there are, there are a number of cases in this, uh, in this study that I did look at, um, but it's probably not going to be your first option. <laughs> and it wasn't, ex- you know, it wasn't something that was accessible to, you know, a lot of people. It was, it was very much in the sense that I'm looking at it with the court of chivalry and so on. It was very much part of this elite, you know, sort of elite world. Hmm. Right. So, uh, so coming towards the end, um, if you did get yourself convicted of treason, if your defence failed, then, um, you were probably in line for a, a pretty brutal, public, humiliating end. You talked about that that one chap uh, being dragged through the streets on on the back of a hurdle, for instance. Um, what what sort of demises did people meet, and why were these uh, why why were these endings quite so brutal? Well, the the uh, the process of uh, the the ritual around an execution. First of all, it was public to really communicate the message to the entire political community of the nature of this person's complete undoing as a political subject. So the process of uh, drawing, which was being dragged through the streets, generally um, on a hurdle behind a horse. So. The idea was really to completely undo the traitor's identity as a political subject and to permanently exclude him from the body politic of the realm through this this quite symbolic ritual of degradation and punishment. And if we look at high-status traitors, men like uh, Henry Le Scroop, who was executed during the reign of Henry V, before he was actually dragged through the streets and beheaded this he went through a ritual was which was essentially the reverse of the knighting ritual so his sword belt was stripped from him and his spurs were cut off you know were sort of cut off uh, so it symbolized his undoing as a knight because he had completely lost his knightly honor through his act of treason and then this process of the hanging and the um the drawing and the disemboweling. So each step in this process actually had its own political meaning that would have been understandable to the wider populace. So you have, you know, a populace that isn't necessarily literate, but this is a form, the traitor's body serves as a form of political communication as a kind of text, really. So, for example, disemboweling was because people's evil thoughts were thought to arise from their bowels. So this kind of reflected medieval medical theory about where evil thoughts came from. And, you know, the beheading was he had, 
you know, the traitor had tried to strike the head from the body politic by killing the king or attacking the king. So his own head was struck off and then his body was divided. And often the body parts were sent to significant locations and posted in very public places where that message could be communicated to everyone. So in Henry Henry Lescroup's case, he came from, his family was very strongly associated with the city of York. So his head, after he was executed, his head was sent to York and posted on the city walls where everyone would see it. And this destruction and dismembering of the body was really a form of complete uh, stripping away of the person's uh, identity and social status and um, any kind of sense that they had a place as a political subject in the realm, in in that body politic. So, uh, summing up, the, the picture you're painting there is one of uh, like a really unstable, brutal sort of society, very dangerous for people, um, certainly in the higher echelons of power, to to maintain their place and not end up with a, in a in a horrible um, uh, position like you've just described. Um, I suppose, uh, having looked at all, done all this research, having thought about it, what are the what are the main themes that you bring out uh, from from looking at this? topic what what how does it help us to understand the medieval period uh, more generally from what you're from what you've looked at well I think we need to remember that um, you know treason is at heart really a constitutional issue so it's about defining the limits of political power in the realm and where power lies and who can wield it what makes legitimate political power versus illegitimate power, you know, authority versus power. Um, And by going through this process of defining the traitor's offences and describing the entities against which they have offended, you're actually kind of also defining the wider constitutional structures of the realm. So the relationship between the king and the realm and his, and Sub, uh, the king and his subjects and the realm and, and this emerging idea of uh, you know, the community of the realm and the, the nation of England and so on. So I think treason is quite an interesting way to get an insight into these broader uh, political questions and concerns, really. And it also... Uh, you know, helps us understand more about how kingship was embodied and also um, the sort of the the relationships and roles of other uh, political entities that go into making up that the, the government and the body politic and, and notions of legitimate authority and sovereignty and the limits of uh, political authority, really. I sort of see this study as uh, contributing to some the wider scholarship, both on queenship, uh, so gender and queenship, and also some recently some quite excellent studies on kingship and masculinity that really demonstrate we can't fully understand medieval political thought 
and sort of legal and constitutional history without attention to gender. And I think this is the way sort of more scholarship is starting to go now where we are starting to recognise that we really need to understand, um, you know, how these ideas about manhood and kingship intersected and so on in order to understand how political power was imagined and the limits of political possibility and to understand why particular political conflicts uh, sort of spun out in the ways that they did and the particular types of discourses and accusations and so on that were more or less effective in um, sort of waging both political debate and sort of more full-on political conflicts. So I think it really has some wider implications for the history of kingship and also understanding different models of political subjecthood as well and people coming to see themselves as loyal to the king but also as having these wider loyalties to ideas of the, the, the people and the nation of England and so on. That was Dr Amanda McVitie. Her new book, Treason and Masculinity in Medieval England, is published now by Boyd Allen Brewer. If you're interested in medieval history, then make sure you sign up for our medieval newsletter at historyextra.com forward slash newsletters. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.